welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. Thank you for listening. David. Yeah. How you doing? Well, I'm, I'm glad to see that you're speaking up already. Yeah. We have we, we, we do a sound check beforehand. And you now you have experience on stage. Yeah. Uh, speaking into microphones. Uh, this might come up later in the show as well. And yet I'm always surprised by like the fact that when you do the sound check, you do it way low energy. Whereas I intentionally try to do the sound check like like the way I'm going to get excited about talking about Benedict Cumberbatch or whatever comes up in this episode. Um, it's very specific. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I, I'm surprised that you go, check, check. Like, yeah. <laughs> and, then, uh, and then as soon as the episode starts, you're like, you're up. Yeah. Uh, as long as I have uh, been acting, that is always what has happened, uh, whether it be a sound check or a rehearsal. My energy is at most 80%. <laughs> um like I, I i remember i was doing like a, a skit like at church and stuff and it was fairly high energy and i was doing pretty well in rehearsals then the actual performance came along uh-huh. and i i my character was uh, an overbearing director and uh who like fights with fights with like the actors uh in the skit within a skit and uh after it was over the guy that i was fighting with after afterwards he's like w- w- where did that <laughs> Where did that come from? I was like, what are you talking about? Because I don't, I don't, I didn't really realize it until then that my, my energy goes way up when, you know. On I, the day. On the day. Yeah. And uh, he's like, what? You know what you are. What's that? You're clutch. You're a clutch player. That's kind of true uh, in a number of ways, uh, not the least of which, uh, like if you and I ever play pool, uh-huh. uh, like eight ball or something, um, you, you're going to kick my ass for a good portion of it, then I'm going to win. That's usually how it works. And I, that's the thing. One could say like, oh, he comes through in the end. And it's like, well, no, it's just that there are fewer balls I have to, I have to maneuver <laughs> right. around. It's not it's not really skill or anything like that. Um, but yes, yeah, so, uh, but uh, speaking of sound checks, uh, when I was when I was acting on stage and they would do, and we had mics, uh, my sound check was always, this is how I'm going to talk, and this is the volume I'm going to use while talking. That's uh-huh. what I would say. But it was never true, right. ever. <laughs> like, if, like, if I was doing an accent, I wouldn't do the sound check in the accent. So when I said, this is how I'm going to talk, that was never true. Right. And this is the volume I'm going to use while talking. I, like, the minute I stepped on stage, that became a, a uh-huh. horrible lie. But I kept saying it because <laughs> I wanted to say something. Your sound check is, of, of course, up until we started doing this, for anything performance-related – your sound check was always, uh, I believe, the preamble to the Constitution, correct? Yeah, and I think that was just because I just did, because I had uh, experience in like high school and community theater and and stuff like that, working a soundboard, and I wanted I wanted a sound check that would last long enough for them for the sound guy to get what he needed. Yeah, you know, so I yeah, the preamble to the Constitution is long enough, and if they got what they need, they can cut me off. No hard feelings. Now, here's a fun story that I think we might have said before. Uh, you were the sound guy, <laughs> and I was the actor. In a production You're of... You're the DJ, I'm William, the rapper. Yeah. Um, no, a production of William Inge's Bus Stop. That's true, yes. That's how we met, doing, mm-hmm. this sh- doing that show. And uh, I was the sound, soundboard operator. Yes. Because there was also a sound designer. His name was Jeff. Yeah, Je- and yeah. he drove a car that he had put two... Gi- it was a little, little coupe. Tiny little car. Okay. He put two gigantic subwoofers into this thing <laughs> and we're sitting in like in crunching like i think there was very little room for me to sit in his back seat because it's a two-door to begin with and okay. then it's like there's just the stereo equipment this is the sound designer by the way and he's listening to insane clown posse 
and <laughs> and he's got he's got the bass up to the point where you can't hear what else is going on in the rest of the song. <laughs> and so, like, we, we're not talking. Of course, we're not talking because he's got the the ICP up so loud. And we get to where we're going. I think we're going to pick up like some goods or something at a Home Depot or a Walmart or something in uh, Fulton, Missouri. And um, we get out of the car, and I'm like, I think you have the bass up too high. And he, it was like I said, uh, it was like I was speaking another language. Like, the idea that the bass could be too high when listening to Insane <laughs> Compassi in his car, it did not translate to him. He didn't know what I was talking about. That was the sound designer for the show. You know, I remember, <laughs> yeah, I remember Jeff. And I remember uh, at the time, I believe I had just started getting into like Tom Waits and stuff like that. So it's he and I. the story. He and I, yeah, yeah, well. Remember that. This will come up later. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's what my dad, like, sometimes when I'd watch a movie with my dad as a kid, and I was a little kid, and so he would, like, say, if something was, like, foreshadowing and he'd seen the movie before, he'd be like, remember that, or whatever. And then I remember one time watching, with him, I had already watched with my friends Who Framed Roger Rabbit. That's right. And uh, he watched it with me and my cousins, and the first time that, uh, what's it, that Christopher Lloyd, what's the character's name? Judge, Judge Doom. Doom says to his uh like what are they supposed to be weasels weasels. his weasel henchman you know one of these days you're gonna laugh yourself to death i turned to my dad at at all of like six years old and was like remember that (laughs) what year is it's 88 88 so i was six i was probably seven by the time this was happening yeah Yeah, i said remember that he's like thanks kid (laughs) um yeah, and so yeah, keep keep Tom Waits in mind, but there's uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But yeah, and I remember, so I just discovered him, and I remember having a conversation with Jeff, in which I was talking about Tom Waits, and he was talking about ICP, <laughs> which I knew a little bit about. It's like, oh right, the the clown guys, right? Right. Yeah. And uh, and he was really passionate about them, mm-hmm. and I remembered, I just, uh, and I haven't thought about that in fourteen <laughs> years. I had another coworker. I might have said this. This is a very brief story. Um, at, a coworker, the first video store I ever worked at, who when I asked him, well, I sh- he was into like punk rock and stuff, and then I men- he mentioned ICP at some point. And I w- I registered surprised that he was into insane clown po- insane clown posse, and he said the following sentence to me verbatim. He said, "I wouldn't say I'm a juggalo, but I'm definitely down with the clown." <laughs> 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 okay so we'll go back to okay here's the tom waits so um we had done i'm not sure show. if i would say i'm in it to win it but <laughs> i'll definitely pay to play <laughs> um, uh so we had done the show and we've been rehearsing all week this is our first performance in uh in fulton missouri uh at the international the missouri thespian conference yeah. for that year um, we would then take the show to the International Thespian Conference. Where was that? In the cosmopolitan uh, metropolis of Lincoln, Nebraska. That's right. I make fun. Lincoln, Nebraska is an awesome place, by the way. I've been a couple times. Um, anyway, um, so we had rehearsed in in, in, the sh- in, in what, what, what Jeff, the sound designer, had put together. Because I don't know if you know the play bus stop. I know you do, Tyler. I'm saying to listeners. Yes. Um, it takes place during a snowstorm. And so Jeff had developed about 20 minutes of wind rushing that would just play on a loop we, the cd player mm-hmm. in the theater would just i just i hit hit repeat or whatever and it would just play that on a loop for the duration of the play and then every time 
the door would open or something like that, I would just put the fader up a little bit so the wind that you would yeah. always it was low enough that you'd almost forget it was there. Oddly and enough, then, this was not the story that I wanted to bring up. Oh, okay. Well, I, there's I'm another. Finish. There's a diff, There's is two a other Tom Waits story. There's two other uh, stories. Okay. One having to do with Tom Waits. One not, but both of them have to do with you being the sound guy. Okay. Um, well, but this is on. the one that. Uh, so it was the, this wind rushing thing that Jeff had put together was low enough that you would almost. It was just sort of part of the tapestry but then when the door would open i'd you know yeah. you'd hear it it was a night it was a neat idea it, like yeah it. it was a nice touch and then so we did we rehearsed in one theater all week we performed in that theater and then they think in my in my recollection we weren't even initially planned to do a second performance no we weren't okay so we moved to did we pit, pull move the the set and everything to another smaller a, a small the smaller stage to do a second performance of bus stop during the same conference because it mm-hmm. was such a hit it was an encore performance uh, but we couldn't do it at the same location. And what that meant is different CD player setup in the sound thing. And so the repeat button didn't work the same way or didn't have the same functionality. So I thought I had it, had it going on. Um, but what it had done was it was a five-disc changer or something like that. And it had gone from the wind rushing after the 20 minutes to, <laughs> to the next disc, which I guess the sound guy who... Worked at 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 uh, well, what's the name of the college in Fulton? Uh, we oh were? hell, I don't remember. It's like it's I don't know. Anyway, uh, William something. Anyway, uh, anyway, the 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 sound guy there must have been a big Tom Waits fan, particularly of the uh, 1999 album Mule yeah. Variations, which starts with a song called "Big in Japan." Mm. Starts with a bang. Yeah, it's a good song. Um, even for an on the fence Tom Waits guy like me, that's a that's a good song. Uh, In a good with a good album, yes. Yeah, I, that is one I really like. Uh, anyway, so as I mentioned, you don't really hear it, so I didn't really notice that it had gone to um, to the next thing until uh, some of the other crew members who had jobs that didn't require them to be backstage were sitting in the audience and it gets to a part where Tyler's character, the sheriff, mm-hmm. is about to storm out. So no, I'm ready. It's it's my last. This is my my final exit. Is that right? Okay. Final exit of the final performance of something we've been doing for like two years now. It's and it was over a year we've been working. On so this. I was feeling kind of emotional. <laughs> uh-huh. So I got off. So I go to open the door and just and I say, and hold on, right before, right before this moment, I know we. I just said we've heard the rehearsed, we've rehearsed this. We've performed it already. My fingers on the fader. I know Tyler's about to storm out. And I'm going to bring this up. And as I have my finger on the fader, as you're saying your line, Monta- I see. I've got it. Well, I see two. Okay, say your line. Montana's not a bad place, miss. And then I see two of the crew members running toward me up the, <laughs> up the stairs. I'm at the back of the house. Uh, of the, of the, uh, yeah, of the house. Running up the stairs. And I'm like, hmm, I wonder what that's going on. As I lift up the fader, it's like... <laughs> yeah. Big in Japan. Yeah. Just fills the theater. Yeah. And it's weird. Like, of all things that like mule variations was the first uh tom waits album that i owned um and i was f- very familiar with it at that point so i go off and i was feeling you know the weight of you know th- this play is over for me yeah what the hell was that i kn- wait i know what that is yeah but I feel like that shouldn't be there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, in this version, in this performance of Bus Stop, it's next door to some sort of demented honky tonk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, what was your story that you were going to tell? Uh, well, it's it's kind of a two parter uh, where okay. um, 
I think I was not used to doing plays with a mic. I was used to projecting. And so um, I would do... Uh, okay, so what happened was we, we each had a, a personal mic, a, a lavalier, I believe. Is that what it was? Or was it, or was it something that went over the ear? Yeah, it was, it was over the ear. Okay, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty sure. So, uh, we might have done it differently in Fulton than we did it in Lincoln, but that's not. I don't remember which one it was, but yeah. And so, uh, I'll talk to any of those people more anymore besides you. Yeah, me either, including the people I went to high school with. Um, (laughs) but, uh, so, uh, I had just acquired the Tom Waits album, Frank's Wild Years. And, uh, so we were backstage. The, the show had not really started. Um, and I was very quietly singing to myself, um, Innocent When You Dream, mm-hmm. which was a song I was really into at the time. It's, it's still, I, I, I enjoy the song. Um, and uh, later on, and what I didn't know is that the mics are always on and the sound guys can always hear you. Whether or not it's coming through the house. Whether or not it's coming yeah. through the house or not. And so later, so I was singing it very quietly to myself. Uh-huh. And you said later on, it's like, hey, were you singing? It's like. <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> and, and you said, yeah, I, like I, I heard, you know, we were doing sound checks and everyone's getting set up and I heard very faintly <laughs> this thing. I was like, Oh yeah, I was, <laughs> I'm not going to now. And that's the thing I had a, uh, at the time I had kind of a little jet. I meant, I mentioned earlier that I, I would kind of wind, get wound up before I performed. Mm-hmm. One of the things I would do is I would do the, uh, mad as hell speech from, uh, network uh, mm-hmm. just to myself to kind of get my energy up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and I would do it before a performance, never before a rehearsal. And, uh, and so knowing full well that the sound guys could hear me, uh-huh. I was like, well, I don't want anyone to think I'm insane uh-huh. by just being like, bah, 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 just like, do, <laughs> like just mumbling angrily to myself. <laughs> uh, so I was like, I guess I'm going to have to forego my, uh, you know, my little tradition of doing the Peter Finch monologue. Cause my dumb friend David will come to me and be like, hey, are you okay? Are you going to make it? I went ahead and called the understudy. <laughs> all uh, right. No understudies in that show. Um, all right. What did you have for the top of the show? <laughs> we yeah. Well, it wasn't that. Time doing that. Um, okay. So, uh, you know what, David? We've just been looking back. Uh-huh. We've been thinking back to, you know, uh, old times. And it's, it's a lot of fun. And apparently listeners enjoy that, which is, you know, good for them. Yeah. Um, Look, those are those are good stories. They're good stories, and they, you know, it lets you know a little bit about the history of uh, David and myself. And you know what? Here's oh, wait before we get off this. Can okay. I tell another story about Jeff. We're making him seem like a tool. He was a nice. I got along with him. He was super well. nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, but do you remember one? He was micing. He and I were micing up the actors. At uh, I think this was in Lincoln, and you met, you mentioned the people you went to high school with. Your friend Matt, yeah, happened to say the word Macbeth in the theater. Oh, and. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff I'm slapped not... him in the back of the head. Yeah, he's like standing behind him, running the 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 mic through the back of his shirt, and Matt was like, blah, 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 blah. Macbeth, whack, just like got slapped in the back of the head. Yeah, and, Scott, and Jeff made him go outside and I don't know, turn around and spit or whatever. Yeah, whatever it is, it's a dumb thing. Yeah, that whole thing is like you're supposed to say the Scottish play. It's like, look, I'm doing this because I can't act in film. All right. Film people don't do this sort of thing. <laughs> All, right. All right. So I'm sorry. You were saying we're looking back. We're looking back. Uh, and, you know, it's a lot of fun. And by the way, one of the reasons that I enjoy looking back specifically to like a uh, bus stop is I always like to let people know 
we're no slouch. You are like a good sound guy, the best in the state, one could say. Uh, I guess. Uh, apparently, right? Can't argue with it. You like I got, I got the job even though I I wasn't even at the previous yeah, best no. band conference where you had to I dro- I was at Youth in Government, okay, which is where uh, uh, nerds from all over the state come and take over the uh, um, the state capital in Jefferson City, Missouri, okay. and pretend to be the government for oh neat like four days, and I was pretending to be a lobbyist on behalf of the ACLU. So obviously, I had this pinko <laughs> blood in my veins yeah. all the way back then, and I took an afternoon to go to whatever the conference was that year yeah. and interviewed, and they uh, yeah. And, the show. and during the interview, you're really hoarse from just yelling racist over and over again <laughs> at that. No, uh, but I was wearing a suit because I had to wear a suit for oh, nice. the government. So I did show up in the interview for a suit. Maybe that's what got me the job. It's a nice suit. I've seen I, I saw your suits. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I enjoy uh, I always like to let people know it's like, hey, we there was a time when we were really good at stuff we did. Yeah, we're still really good. Fair enough. We're the best at so. this. We're clearly the best movie podcast there is. Don't you like people to know that like there was a you that that they never met? You know what I mean? Like I haven't acted in years, but when people have dis- when people find out that I used to act, uh-huh. first off, to a certain extent, they're not surprised because I tend to be kind of theatrical in my everyday life. But they're like, "Oh wow, you used to do that!" And I, I list some of the plays off uh, that I was in, admittedly, like in high school and stuff, and some college. Um, and uh, people, it's not so much that they're impressed. It's not necessarily about impressing people, but they're just surprised. There's a mm-hmm. different dimension that they didn't think of, Yeah, you know, that they didn't know about. And so, you know, you had a previous life as like a, a hardcore theater sound guy. Yeah. And, and an also before that. Actor. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very, very occasional. Um, before that, this is the thing that always surprises people uh, for some reason is that I um, was a competitive swimmer for most of my youth from the ages of eight to 16. I'm not exaggerating. There was barely a day that went by that I wasn't in the swimming pool. Yeah. Which is crazy to think about right now. <laughs> you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. David is in a speedo every week, but, uh, but yeah. And so, uh, so we're looking back and, a tie. and here's uh, <laughs> yeah, formal. It gotta be yeah. formal. Uh, okay, you're so a grown, lo- you're a grown man. We're looking back. We're looking back but over the past 18 so, minutes of bullshit show. So it's only been 18 minutes. Yeah. Kick ass. <laughs> <laughs> I was really excited. I'm really excited to find it was under 30. Um, so when I, uh, years ago, back when I had a MySpace page, uh, for no particular reason, um, on New Year's Day, like probably 2004. No, no, no. I didn't. I don't think I had MySpace then. Maybe 2005 or six. Mm-hmm. Um, on New Year's Day, I thought, okay, it is now whatever year. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what movies are now ten years old? Yeah. Just because, and it started as like, it started as that kind of the nostalgia thing. It was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe so and so is that uh, such and such a movie is this this old. So, I, but then I did it again the next year, and then the next year, and and I've done it every year. Uh, and I posted a little blog, and I and and uh, and I've done it over at the uh, More Than One Lesson website. Um, but over the last few years, it's no longer the hey, I'm feeling old, and it more is just an opportunity to look back about like using film as like a timestamp for my life do, and do you, for our culture yeah um, like do you know what i mean that's when what, i say that like yeah i totally uh, agree because i i've made the case before that um as, as fun as it is to do these like retrospectives and lists and best of the year mm-hmm. every year 
um, there's a reason that I'm so strict with what I, what like qualifies for my list. And that's because I have this feeling, and maybe this is pompous of me, but the feeling that I'm doing it for posterity, that, that I or other people who like this show or like the website can look back at the archive, you know, in however many years and have a sense of what was going on in the culture oh, yeah. at that time. And I think that, that sort of thing uh, is helpful uh, for that. You know, I'm not a fan of nostalgia. But, right. Uh, and that's the thing. It started as a nostalgia and it became, I don't think, I don't think looking back and just reassessing how, f- not even how far you've come, but how different your life mm-hmm. looks. And then also just how different, like you said, culture looks, how different the culture of film looked. Like for example, so we just hit 2014. Happy new year, uh-huh. David. Thank uh, you. Thank and you, you, and you, the listener. Um, so, okay. 10 years ago, 2004. Uh-huh. Um, already, like this is where like the nostalgia thing kicks in which like it's like mm, 10 years ago we were into the we were into the 2000s well into them that surprises <laughs> me because for a while 10 years ago got us into the 90s but anyway um yeah, but it's been a while since it hasn't i don't know maybe i'm not as backwards looking as you that doesn't surprise me as much i'm not sure if i like the term backwards looking um <laughs> but uh so but now i look back at 2004 and Looking at the list, it was so uh, of movies that were released that year. It's so fascinating to think of certain things. Like, for example, one of the most uh, one of the most vital filmmakers working today is Edgar Wright. Uh-huh. Two thousand four is when Shaun of the Dead came out. Uh-huh. A movie came out that people, including myself, were just like, "Oh, a zombie comedy." First off, zombie movies were not necessarily back. Right, right, right. And so we already had Dawn of the Dead remake, right? That's we had three. Dawn of the Dead. That was that was that might have been four as well. It was four. Oh, okay. So it was they were both uh, two thousand four. Okay. And but there hadn't been anything like major zombie related in a while, and so uh, so he did that, and it took everybody by surprise. And since then, you got Hot Fuzz. You've got Scott Pilgrim. You've got. Uh, uh, the world's end, not this is the end. You've got the world's right. end. Uh, you've got, and then the idea that now he's moving into superhero territory with mm-hmm. Ant Man. And so, like, but there was a time when this guy, who among people our age and probably younger, is one of the most important filmmakers and certainly one of the most important, maybe the most important comedic filmmaker working right now. Uh, and there was a time when, oh, what a novelty. Who's, mm-hmm. Who is this guy? Uh, like, I saw Shaun of the Dead. I thought it was good. I thought it was funny. I wouldn't have necessarily thought this guy is going to be a major comedic voice in the future. Yeah. Um, but that's as opposed to, don't get me wrong, Shaun of the Dead got a big following pretty quick. Yeah. Uh, especially Including w- by me. I was one yeah. of them. Especially when it hit DVD. But then also, like, compare that to a movie that came out the same year, Napoleon Dynamite. Big deal at the time. I was not a fan of it. At the time, uh, upon revisiting it a few years ago, still not a fan. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I remember I waited a, such a long time to see it that I think I was so ready to hate it because so many people I liked hated it that I was like, oh, this isn't that bad. Enough. And there's, pe- a, there's, a, there's still a lot of funny lines in it, you know, when <laughs> come get some ham. I like I laugh one. at that. Um, my favorite is when he's asked how his day was. He says, worst day of my life. What do you think? <laughs> And then the one, funny the one you and I laugh at is when John Grise says, I better could throw a football over that mountain. Well, yeah, you can't. Is it Grise? Is that how you say his name? I don't know. Yeah, uh, you can't beat that guy. Yeah, he's uh, great. He's great in everything. But um, but so like, but the, the uh, I forget the name, the last name Hess. There's uh, Jared, Jared Hess, and yeah. Hess and is it Jer- Jerusha? Yeah. Or something like that. Um, and I just saw something. 
go on. Okay. But like Napoleon dynamite was, was huge. Like it was, it wound up making a lot more money than people thought. It got such a big following. They followed up with Nacho Libre. Then I think gentlemen Broncos, like it's just, they're nothing. I hate to put it that way, but like they're not a cultural blip right now. But it, but ten years ago, boy oh boy, people couldn't wait to see what this guy was going to do next. Um, Jerusha Hess, Jerusha Hess directed his first movie this year. It was called Austin Land, and it was terrible. Oh, that's right. Okay, so <laughs> it's just so stuff like that. And then and uh, going back to last week, two thousand three and two thousand four was the where the Kill Bill movies where Tarantino was moving into his career, but into the next phase of his career. But we didn't necessarily know right, that. Yeah, now we yeah. do, and so. And then also, it's worth noting, 2004 is when I started working at Blockbuster. Ten years, I would not have assumed ten years from now, Blockbuster would not even exist. Right. Stuff like well, that I find very interesting. Let me, before we move on, because I always think, you, you think about ten years, I think maybe because it's a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame mentality, I always think of what's 25 years old. Cause okay. That's, in order to get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it has to be 25 years since your first release. Okay. Or whatever. So, the following movies are now eligible for the rock and roll for the I, movie I, hall of fame can I, I i can name a couple okay do the right thing yeah that's on there batman that's yeah that's on there driving miss daisy yeah born on the fourth of july uh yes Hold on. um my left foot um my left foot is on there yeah can't what else is big in 89 i don't remember uh, when harry met sally that's 89 wow yeah uh indiana jones and the last crusade field of dreams weirdly the first one that left to mind for me was glory because i loved that movie when i was little that's true yeah. uh, not little little but when i was old enough to watch it at a friend's house without my parents finding out uh dead poets society the little mermaid crimes and misdemeanors back to the future Two, say anything the abyss oh yeah sex lies and videotape the fabulous baker boys national lampoon's christmas vacation these movies are all 25 years old now See, and that's the thing is like, yes, of course I feel old at that point, uh, but at the, and I recognize I'm not old. 31 years old is not that old. Um, I'm going to be 32 and then, I, then I'll be old, obviously. <laughs> um, cause I'll be then in my thirties, but, uh, okay. I already am. It's for, yeah. uh, anyway, but, um, yeah. And so like, that's, and here's the thing. So I mentioned driving Miss Daisy, uh-huh. a movie that is very good. Have you seen it? I've actually never seen it. It's really a great movie i always think it's of stay, stay tuned and driving over miss daisy i do not recall that but i do remember stay tuned a movie i haven't watched in many years and i feel like i want nothing more than to watch it right now <laughs> let's take a break go find and watch stay tuned we'll come back uh, it's a movie i i didn't see when i was a kid i watched it less than 10 years ago like on cable mm-hmm. um uh one day and it's it's weird and i'm kind of glad it exists but it's not actually it's not that great yeah my brother and i loved it when i was a kid <laughs> But, um, but yeah, so, uh, so driving Miss Daisy, you know, was a movie that, uh, was a big cultural touchstone at the time. Now it exists as to a certain extent, kind of a, not necessarily a punchline, but it's now more, more than a movie. It's kind of been relegated to reference. If someone says mm-hmm. like someone says Miss Daisy and chances are they're going to be doing a certain type of black voice <laughs> implying like, right. oh, yes, absolutely. Like right. kind of that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so to talk about to to mention like the cultural reference sort of thing. This brings me to another thing that's a bit of an offshoot, but is actually going to tie into the topic once we finally get to it. Um, but I mentioned I saw August Osage County. OK. And I want to run this by you and the listeners because my fiance thinks I'm crazy and that I'm the only person who ever has this cognitive dissonance i don't have any memory of not knowing who julia roberts is she's been famous for as long as i've been 
cognizant of movies. Okay. Um, whereas Ewan McGregor, who plays her husband in the movie, I didn't know who he was until I was already old, like, I was already my own person. I was, I was like 15 or, uh, I guess I was 14 when Trainspotting came out, but I probably didn't see it till I was 15. Yeah. And I didn't know about Shallow Grave until later. So Trainspotting at 15, I didn't know who he was till I was 15. Mm-hmm. And the difference between nine years old and 15 years old, even though six years is much less of a difference to you and me now, yeah. is is huge. It's humongous. Mm-hmm. And so the idea that Julia Roberts and Ewan McGregor are playing husband and wife, or I guess wife and husband respectively, um, is yeah, I have a, a second of difficulty getting used to it. Yeah, my first thought was like, isn't she like 20 years older than he is? Yeah, she's four years older than he is. I yeah. looked it up. Because she uh, started really early. Like she was uh, yeah, a mystic she was pizza super really early. young. Yeah. And I had a similar thing where, um, I feel like, uh, in her, uh, Joaquin Phoenix and Amy Adams play college friends who went, they went to college together and hmm. they are the exact same age in real life. And that seems crazy to me because I've known who Joaquin Phoenix was since to die for. And it's like 97 or 98, you know? Yeah. Uh, and I, Amy Adams, I didn't like, uh, I, I, I don't remember when I would have first known who, she was. I remember she was on an episode of Buffy. She was in the Slaughter Rule. I'm not sure what really first brought her to my attention. That's going to bug me now. What was the first June one? Bug? It would, no, I already knew who she was by June Bug. Hmm. Because I remember seeing the Slaughter Rule and being like, oh, that's, even though she's in like one scene in that movie, I was like, oh, that's the girl from whatever. Anyway, but it's, it was the same thing I, to me. I was like, there's no way Joaquin Phoenix and Amy Adams went to college together. Nope, they're the exact same age. Yeah, that's how I felt, not that I saw the film, but that's how I felt about Grudge Match. Doesn't it seem like Robert De Niro is a solid 15 to 20 years older? Than Sylvester Stallone? Yeah. Uh, I don't know, because I've always, they've always, oh, they've both always been around for me. So they're all, in that, they're both in that same category for me. But I think, like, because, I think because uh, uh, Stallone took the like really just embraced the action star thing when De Niro was was often making movies about a character getting older mm-hmm. you know um I th- I think of him as an older guy than Stallone who only in the last 10 years has started making movies about getting older Rocky Balboa and stuff like that and even then filtering it through the action uh thing um, by the way, Catch Me If You Can is the movie that put Amy Adams my radar, which is the same year as The Slaughter Rule. Okay. Um, I didn't. I don't even remember her in Catch Me If You Can. Well, she's in. Um, <laughs> I'm, not saying, I'm not calling you a liar. And if I was... Oh, and also, there was this, I probably knew the episode of um, The West Wing that she's in. I don't know if I remember. It's, it's uh, called 20 Hours in America. And uh, Toby and Josh and Donna get stranded yes. on a diesel or a soy soy diesel or something like yeah, yeah. Uh, truck that and she she and her brother uh are the farmers that are taking them around and that's right lost. yes yes yeah. that's that's when the our, our heroes are in the uh, in middle america dealing with just a bunch of morons just people that are all dumber than they are that well, episode I mean, is funny but it just it bothers me so much it feels condescending to me oh i would disagree entirely i feel like that's how Toby and Josh. I feel like the movie is much harder on Toby and Josh because it shows us maybe how how they see it and how how completely ill-equipped they are to live outside of their little bubble. See, and I guess I feel like the movie is very kind to uh, just to make sure Midwesterners TV show. 
that episode. That, yeah, that, sorry, that episode is really okay. kind to, to Midwesterners. See, and I guess maybe because I view it in, in the larger terms of a TV show, and that's the thing, that's, that's the difference between you and me and the way we approach TV. Though I try to view episodes individually, mm-hmm. I can't, I have a hard time divorcing them from the overall context and knowing that they are our heroes. Not that they don't make mistakes, obviously, but I feel like the the show in that episode, though they come off as condescending, it's almost treated as though they they have a reason to be condescending. Come on, you know. I don't, I don't and it's so. not beyond the realm of possibility. I mean, if we're thinking about like Robert Ritchie and that sort of thing, like characters that come on that embrace okay. a certain viewpoint. And but, I don't merely mean conservative. I mean a certain type of conservative. Right, yeah, Robert Ritchie is not – the character is not just here's your Republican stand-in. He's very specifically the George W. Bush right. surrogate. Right. Uh, that, that's why I'm okay with Robert Ritchie being painted as, as really dumb. People who aren't into the West Wing have no idea what we're talking about. I know. About. Yeah, but sorry. Even, going should. back to 20 Hours in America, like who uh, – other than the teenagers who are stupid because they're teenagers, who look who comes off looking bad? <laughs> we have teenage. We have a handful of teenage listeners. No, but I mean the the, the character. The, but the if they're char- listening to this, they're smart, Dave. Yes, but those teenagers on that show are portrayed as stupid, not in a midwestern way, but in a petty teenage way. I'm trying to think back, and I've seen it a couple of times. And, and then there's the the diner owners who were very rude to Toby and Josh because Toby and Josh are fucking rude and come in and act all entitled. See, and I feel you know what I. Like I said, I saw it twice, maybe even three times. It's been a while, but I do like. I remember the like the diner scene where they do, where they are kind of assholes, but I feel like the show approaches that as somehow endearing. I don't think so. I think that's why they're just that, like ah, that's just Toby and Josh being Toby and Josh. That's you know there's that are. whole thing where they uh, Toby loses a bet where he has to introduce himself as my name's Toby Ziegler. I work at the White House. And the, and it's because they know that the people out there aren't going to like that or that they're going to come across as pompous, mm-hmm. which they are. And then it, there's that great scene at the bar at the end where Josh is like, oh, we've been through enough. You don't have to be a dick anymore. You don't have to say it. And then he says it for a whole different reason. It's a right. great scene. It's what it's, that, I love that episode, actually. That is that is a good scene, but it's it comes at – I don't know. It, and you know what's odd? The White House thing, yes. I recognize that there's an emphasis on that. My first thought when I saw that that interaction about uh-huh. like what Toby has to say uh-huh. is that people are not going to respond well to the last name Ziegler. Oh, that was my first thought. I don't know if that's true. Well, and that's no, don't get me wrong. I'm saying like that's why they're making him say it is so that yes, the pompousness of I work at the White House, but also listen to my last name. I, I don't know. There's plenty of Midwestern s- Jews. <laughs> I know. I saw again. You got to see a serious mandate, right? Um, no, it's. That, that I was, also that was, grew up in a in a you know mid sized midwestern city. I know there, there were Jewish people at my high school. I remember them. I could name them. <laughs> exactly right. right. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. I remember there was a there was a guy that I got along very well with in uh, in my high school in De- uh, Denver. Uh-huh. And yeah, there's you know. I, anyway. felt, I, I always felt kind of bad. Now we're at thirty five minutes. Okay, let's. West Wing got us into. Hey, West Wing's got acting in it. Yeah, well, let's uh, let's talk about our sponsor. So, uh, first, our, first off, you go to tweakedaudio.com slash pretension for professional quality earbuds in a variety of styles and colors. And using that slash pretension portal gets you uh, one third off in no shipping charges. David, we do have another sponsor. Yes, I've got good news for you. Okay, 
And yet my phone just turned off. Hang on. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Hit! Exclamation point is back with a brand new Kickstarter campaign to finance issue two, which picks up right where the first issue left off. Hitman Connor Connolly is stranded in Hot Springs, Arkansas, with two bullets in his body and no idea how things went so wrong. He receives help from a mysterious stranger who has a peculiar interest in his well-being. Along with Hit, issue two, the guys over at Gentleman Baby Comics will be kicking off a second comic series called Come In Closer, which follows a teenager in 1970s St. Louis, David, All right. as he befriends an, enigma- an enigmatic musician named Saturn. Uh, all uh, and, and in the backdrop, there are. this is my own personal uh, explanation. Okay. I couldn't work it in, but I feel like I should. Um, and, in the, and in the background, there are a number of grisly suburban murders. I feel nice. like that'll play a role. Yeah, Maybe yeah. not in issue one, but uh, as they go on. Uh, the goal... The Kickstarter goal is, I think, a very reasonable $3,500. Rewards for contributing include copies of the comic, uh, T-shirts, commissioned art, and the opportunity to be drawn into the comic. Check out the Kickstarter by clicking on the ad at BattleshipPretension.com. You can find more at GentlemanBabyComics.com or, as David has taken to calling it in the past, GentlemanBabyComics. Dot com. Dot, dot com. Dot com. Thank you. Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, David and I were sent um, issue number one. I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was beautiful. Yes. And uh, so I highly recommend you guys uh, uh, help out with the Kickstarter. And by the way, uh, I didn't write this down. I was going to save it for next week, but I'll throw it out there. Uh, we've sort of partnered with them. So if uh, there are a couple of uh, pa- reward packages yeah. that are in which you can get uh, Battleship Pretension related uh, merchandise Very as a exciting. reward. Very exciting. Uh, so yeah, check that out. Um, so here's the, here's the deal. I mentioned August Osage County. I saw that recently. I also saw American Hustle recently. Okay. Uh, and it got me thinking. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. It got me thinking about a blind spot. Oh, you know what? There's one more tangent I wanted to go on real quick. Or I wanted to ask you if you'd heard about this. Okay. Um, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, or whatever, I don't know. Is that it? AFPA? Yeah. They're actually sticking up for themselves in a way here. Did I, you did, hear about he- this? I did hear about this. This is insane. Yes. I, I didn't see which movies are being advertised this way, but certain movies were advertising themselves as being winners of Golden Globe nominations. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah, it's the Weinstein Company. It's So it's 12 Years a Slave, and, and I don't remember what else, but yeah. Um, is that Weinstein? Yeah. Toby Just Live? I think so. I thought it was like Fox Searchlight. Um, anyway, uh, that's insane. There, there, should, there literally needs to be some sort of governing committee on, uh, on, on awards campaigning that says you can't do that. Because that is completely ridiculous that they would even try that. Yeah, it's... Uh... And I'm, gl- I'm I, glad I've that heard... the Hollywood Foreign Press is actually saying, like, stepping up and saying, this is, we're not okay with this. Yeah. As if to say, look, we know that we're not remarkably prestigious and that a win, uh, an actual win doesn't really even mean that much, but come on. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty outrageous. Uh, I, I've heard, you know what, although in the past in various contexts, I have heard the idea of somebody uh, having like, oh, he, he won the nomination. But I think I almost always hear it in terms of politics. Yeah, because because you do like win a nomination at the, yeah. at the because you're competing. There's the whole primary thing, and you're actually yeah. competing, and then the prize is the nomination, and then you. Yeah. So that 
that actually makes sense. Because uh, you're following the horse race up to the nomination with yeah. the primaries. With the Golden Globes, the nomination is the first time they've mentioned any movies. You know? Yeah. They're not releasing a Golden Globe short list. And even if they were, I don't think this would be okay. I recognize that two weeks is not a long time, but like the actual Golden Globes are in two weeks. And if and your, and your movie might be a winner. I guess maybe they don't want to risk it. And yeah. they want to call it a winner right now, David. But that's the sort of thing like it's like – Aren't you aren't you risking more in terms of losing credibility than you're gaining by saying it's the winner of three Golden Globe nominations? Okay, I recognize that I just uh, condemned uh, the West Wing for what I uh, perceived as a condescending <laughs> attitude. However, what I will say is, no, they're not going to lose credibility. They'll lose credibility with people like us who already are suspicious of uh, awards campaigning. Um but but random people they see winner of a golden globe they don't first off they don't know any kind of any kind of stigma to the golden globes uh they only they see winner golden globe and they're like well i guess this is you know i guess this is a good movie and i'm not saying that i'm not saying they're dumb or gullible but they just don't you know you know I'm, we're talking about people like you know relatives of mine who but don't the, uh, concern themselves with movies the way you and i do and so if they see something as a winner anyone who's going to be attracted to a movie because it's an awards type movie has somewhat discriminating taste, right? No, no, I'm of the opinion. No, uh, because I think there, there are a number of people who, who I've known who feel like, well, I mean, it's the best picture winner. I guess I should see it. Right. I see what you're saying. Um, and just like, it, 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 it creates a feeling of, uh, of necessity. Like, yeah. Oh, this is, important for yeah. me to see and with it won yeah, all and, these golden globe nominations <laughs> <laughs> and, and the thing whether they whether they put it this way or not they're going back to what you and i were talking you and i were talking about a moment ago which is well it's the best like this is considered the best movie of the year i don't want to be the person that hasn't seen the best movie of the year like i don't want to be out of step with the cultural moment mm-hmm. so i guess i'll go see it um this brings me to another question actually my uh my mom mentioned my, – my mom lives in uh, – I'm from St. Louis, but my mom lives in Boise, Idaho. And uh, so, you know, they're privy to what the Golden Globe nominations are. Mm-hmm. But uh, one of the movies my mom wanted to see based on the nominations was Her. But it Her won't open in Boise till after the Golden Globes have aired. Yeah. Uh, that's a bit frustrating, right? Yeah. I, I understand there, there are just logistical difficulties, you know, with a movie that Warner Brothers isn't going to pour the money in to make a billion different – uh, prints or DCPs or whatever to send out to different cinemas. Yeah. So I understand why it has to go that way, but it is a bit frustrating. It's unfortunate. Usually by the time the Oscars roll around, although what that's, although, you know what, that's not true either. When I lived in Missouri, I lived in Springfield, which is a fair, you know, somewhat large city. Um, it's and the I third remember largest city in Missouri for what that's worth. I assume that's behind St. Louis and Kansas city. Yeah. Um, so it's bigger than Columbia. Yeah, certainly Jefferson City. Certainly bigger than Jefferson City. Everything is. But, um, so yeah, when, uh, I actually think Independence is bigger than both Columbia and Jefferson City as well. I don't think it correctly. What about Bolivar? I don't know Bolivar. (laughs) What about Lebanon? Ugh. I remember. What what about Carthage? I remember. You ever been to Carthage? You went to the Precious Moments Cathedral? I've not been to that, but I've driven through Carthage. Okay. Um, I always, I was always fascinated driving through Lebanon because I would say, oh, there's, because I would drive there with 
aforementioned friend uh, Matt and uh, Jennifer Freeman, who all of us were in bus stop, and right. we would rehearse in St. Louis. So we would drive through, through and I said, I said, oh, Lebanon. And they're like, no, it's Lebanon. I was like, no, it's actually Lebanon. I don't think that's true. But We've had this conversation before, actually. I know. Because there are, I talked about streets in New Orleans, like there's, you know, there's the cathedral at Chartres, or whatever, however you say it, yeah. uh, in France, and in New Orleans, the street is called Charters. Uh, yeah. Oh, it's also, like, it's like Los Feliz here, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. There's also a Cairo, Georgia, spelled Cairo. But and they say Cairo? They, they say Cairo. That is, off, that is yeah. off-putting. <laughs> um, okay, but we'll move on. Uh, oh, what the hell was I going to, oh yeah, so, um. Yeah, when I lived in in Springfield, I remember uh, there were two movies that came out in 1998 were getting big awards uh, consideration, Gods and Monsters Mm -hmm. and Affliction. Um, And I don't think they – and like as the Oscars grew closer, I was like, I I really want to see these movies because, you know, I like the idea of Nick Nolte, you know, doing Uh this. And and I think at that point, I think I knew who – although no, I can't pull his name. Damn it. Ian McKellen. Oh. Um, and I, I think I knew who that was and I was excited to see these movies. And then they just, I think they, I don't think they ever actually came there on, in theaters. I think I actually wound up seeing both of them on video. Hmm. So it was, uh, so I guess in some markets they're just depending on the movie. Yeah. Maybe they, maybe they assume gods and monsters would not do well in, uh, in Springfield, Missouri. Yeah. I'm sorry to hear that. It is um, unfortunate. But there is, there is a art, uh, it's an art house type theater in St. or in Springfield. There is now. Um, yeah, I follow them on Twitter. Yeah, uh, what are they the, called? The Moxie. The Moxie. Yes, I follow the Moxie on Twitter. That's a fun theater. Um, it sounds like it based on their Twitter. All right, so let's get into it, shall we? Um, I've mentioned that I've seen a lot of movies lately in preparation for uh, making our best of list. Um, a lot of lot of action at the top of the list. Mm-hmm. Having a lot of fun seeing some <laughs> great movies. But one of the ones that was at a, it's been near the top of a lot of lists. Uh, that I saw was American Hustle. And it's a very good movie, but it's not going to be anywhere near my top 10. Okay. Um, and so, but, but, but despite that, Bradley Cooper's performance in American Hustle is probably the greatest thing that I've ever seen him do and probably one of my favorite performances of the year. And so it got me thinking about my own personal biases about how uh, and maybe bias isn't even the right word. Maybe blind spot is the right word because I think of my because I tend to approach films from a somewhat formalist perspective, and so I tend to think about mise en scène or or, or cinematography or editing. Or you know, I, I tend to think of the structure and mm-hmm. form of the film more so than I do things like the story or the acting. Yeah. You know, and I think that's that's a problem with me. Um, and maybe something I need to to address because I, you know, I, I mentioned those other things like cinematography and editing. When I'm thinking of any film at all, that's on my list of things that I'm considering. Mm-hmm. Acting, I definitely notice if it's good. But if the acting is not good, it's not. I don't really think of it as a ding against the movie. Hmm. I think that's that might be a problem or might be a bit disrespectful to that craft, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and part of that might be, you know, that I like so many, uh, movies, you know, neorealistic movies and stuff like that, that use non-actors. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe, that, that might actually be a whole subset of this conversation we could do hit down the line. So let's put a pin in yeah. non-actors right now. Um, and I, I wanted to do an episode to talk about the importance of acting as an element of the 
entirety of a film uh, and uh, why I've been so disrespectful of it for so long. Yeah. When you uh, sent, okay, you sent me a text saying, Hey, I left you a message. I always I, do I, that because I missed I, a call. Yeah. But I, there've been times in the past where I've let you, left you voicemails and you haven't listened to them. Yes. No, I, but don't get me wrong. My first thought when I see that is, Oh shit, I'm in trouble for something. Uh, and he, he couldn't, He's too mad to text. Uh, he could only text. I sent you a, a message. I, I wish. To, I wish I was joking. I'm not. The next thing I need to work on is when I le- either send you an email or leave you a voicemail. Put all the pertinent information up front because I think you have the the tendency to read the first paragraph of an email and feel like I got it. Uh, can't disagree with you. <laughs> yeah, so um, I got to work on that. So uh, yeah, uh, he's on to me. <laughs> so. Uh, what a bad friend I am. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, so when I read, when I, when I listened to the message, I was, David, I was excited uh-huh. because acting is usually the thing I talked about. I, I talk about mm-hmm. uh, because David, it's my forte. I don't know if you know or not, but since we're looking back, I did win a certain award 14 years ago. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, it was best actor. In the, best, state of, in the state of Missouri. Now, I feel like we don't need best, any qualifiers. I think we got it. Best teenage actor currently yeah. enrolled in a high school <laughs> who was male. Yeah. Who attended the, the conference and auditioned for the, for the prize. Well, I wanted to... I, now, admittedly, first I won in the region. And then I won the state. I feel like region is bigger than state. You think so? Region is just like, like, here's the southern part of the state. Okay. Then it was the whole state. There was not a teenage male actor currently enrolled in a high school in a one-act play that was chosen to be, that the school Uh chose to Uh submit. There was none better than me, David. (laughs) Um, But anyway, so uh, it's sad that that's a punch. Like, I stopped being pr- genuinely proud of that years ago. Uh-huh. Now it, I use it mostly as a joke. Um, I don't even know where the, where the little plaque is. It's, I'm sure it's in a box in my mom's attic. Um, but uh, no, so like acting is something that I've been... Okay, well, it's... All right, so you, you started to talk about your... Uh, not necessarily your bias against it or anything like that, but your dismissal, would you say, of it? I, the, word, the word I'm, I'm more comfortable with is blind spot because I feel like, okay. like that's the least damning to me. <laughs> right, yeah, because I don't think it's... I, I, it's not malicious. Yeah, when you when you see good, a good performance, you acknowledge it. You're not saying, yeah. you're not saying who gives a shit. But that's you know? another thing is maybe part of the reason is that if you read my reviews on the website, um, which you all should, uh, I, I will talk... I will use descriptors when talking about other like uh, most elements of the film the the cinematography the music that so on and so forth i have trouble finding things to say about performances other than whether or not they're good or bad yeah uh and, and maybe it's because i've spent so long not really considering it that i'm not really in tuned with nuances i just sort of know if it's good or bad and it's and there I, are exceptions but yeah of course yeah yeah i mean i remember you and i talked about uh Captain Phillips when, when uh-huh. we both saw it, not that we saw it together, but, uh, yeah. And, and last you, year I couldn't stop talking about Leonardo DiCaprio and Django Unchained. And right. How, and st- having seen that, you know what, let's talk about, cause you've now seen Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Though I've not seen Gatsby yet. Um, okay. Uh, not important, okay. um, for this conversation. I mean, maybe it, it's, here's, here's the thing. I mean, this is a bit off topic. Um, but 
The Great Gatsby is, did I say, it's much better than its reputation. Okay. Uh, it has some major, major stupid, like, forehead-smacking problems with it, but the parts that are good are so good to me that it overcame that. Anyway, that's not the point. Do you agree with me that working with, that based on the evidence we have, working with Quentin Tarantino broke something loose in Leonardo DiCaprio and his performance in Wolf of Wall Street might not have been what it is if he hadn't stepped out of the uh, out of his sort of morose uh grief-stricken character comfort zone that he'd uh you know he played he was playing all these n- not necessarily introverted but characters who had a who were in some way or another trapped in their internal lives you know whether it be because of mental illness in the aviator or because of grief in inception or because of grief in shutter island or whatever or grief and mental illness in shutter island and so that, that was a double whammy um do you feel like or a not great accent in blood diamond <laughs> uh, that's another one i'll defend um uh, anyway um actually that might be see that's another thing we can talk this could be the whole leonardo DiCaprio conversation because blood diamond is a movie I'll, I'll defend despite the fact that i agree with you that he's not that great in it um he, uh, you know what actually okay real quick um his accent is not good but it's consistent and that makes a huge difference yeah yeah as opposed to for example jodie foster and elysium who seems to be trying something new every <laughs> scene but moving uh, on so but do you agree with my theory or does it ring true with you that he could not have done the wolf of wall street the way he did it if he hadn't worked with tarantino my instinct is to say no but because I thought, like, well, you know, when you're working with Martin Scorsese, but he'd worked with him several times before, and each and one had don't variations on. I th- I thought he was doing some really interesting, charismatic, charming work in The Aviator. Yes, there is the undercurrent of like, you know, the tortured soul and stuff. But yeah, he's still he's bad in. A, I mean, he might be bad in Gangs in New York. I don't know. It's been a long time since I've seen it. But yeah. that's not my complaint here. My complaint is not that he's bad, but there was there was a certain. They, they were asking this. They were asking the same thing of him every time. In a, whereas, in a macro sense, I mean, there's different yeah. things going on with the characters, but but he there, he was sort of getting into like a, the Sean Penn type of thing when you talk where you're like, oh, that's what Leonardo DiCaprio does in a movie, right. that sort of performance. And Django Unchained and Wolf of Wall Street have all done a complete 180 from that. Yes, I do think. I think it might have been a one-two punch of J. Edgar. Where he was playing kind uh, something of a larger than life character, though there was still a lot of dourness yeah, to that a film. Lot of it. But um, so I think it was that, and then yes, I I can't really argue with you because like I think when people look at his, I think when people look at his career, they'll see pre Titanic, uh-huh. in which he's just an actor who's just going to do whatever he can do. Then. Heart, then Romeo and Juliet, and then Titanic, and he became kind of a heartthrob. Right. Then he seemed to go ag- as much against that as he could. Which I, I respect. I respect, but then he just started doing kind of the same thing over and over. Doing it well, I think. Doing it remarkably in, in well. In many cases, doing it well. In many, yeah. In cases when he's not doing it well, you can maybe blame Christopher Nolan. Sure, why not? <laughs> Actually, I think, he's, I think he's good in that, too. I think... I don't think there's any... Though, though the character is very similar to the character he played in Shutter Island, and I think he does much better in Shutter Island. I agree. But, um... And that's the thing, like, but you watch, like, you know, Gangs of New York and even The Beach, but, like, uh, you know, Man in the Iron Mask. And then, thankfully, uh, Catch Me If You Can is a nice breath of fresh air. Um, yeah, then, and that's a, that's a pretty lively performance yeah. as well. That, yeah. But then now he, you're putting holes in my theory. But, that, but that's the thing. It's like, but then he just, he goes right back to it. And I don't uh-huh. think, I think, 
do you, do you happen to know the 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 history of of uh, I was about to say? Do you think Martin Scorsese would have cast him? It's like, of course he would have cast him. That's what he does. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm sure he would have worked him into Hugo if he could. But like, um, but yeah, it's. So my first thought was, well, maybe his performance in Django Unchained got him got people to see him in a different way, but. He was in something by Baz Luhrmann, who's worked with before, uh-huh. and Martin Scorsese, who's, who, whom he's worked with several times recently. And so it's like, I think your theory totally holds up okay. because we've seen him with Baz Luhrmann and Martin Scorsese pre Django Unchained. Uh-huh. Now we've seen him after, and boy, oh boy, there's a big difference. Yeah, Because yeah. I didn't see, like I said, I didn't see Gatsby, but I hear it's a really good, charming performance. It is, but I mean, he ways. also has a tortured inner life, so that's kind of... But that's the nature of the character, too. Like, it's yeah. just the way it goes. Um, um, you know, you got to do what what the character requires as well. Yeah. Where, so. But, I mean, that's the difference between... Um, or maybe that's the similarity between his character in Django and his character in Wolf of Wall Street, is that they are consciously, actively, with every word and every action, trying to reject what's going on inside their head. Like, trying to not think about their inner life. Uh do you, do you agree with that? Because I mean, that's my my whole thing about your your big thing with Django Unchained. I know that was that was your theory, and is, I yeah, think is that he knows he knows that something is very very wrong with slavery, and everything he does is to try to justify it to himself and try to keep himself from embracing that knowledge. That's what I think the the heart of that character is. I think there's an I think there's so much going on with the character of Calvin Candy specifically because first off, I mean, of course the dialogue's wonderful, but like the characters, I won't say he's a blank slate, but he never gives a clear motivation. And it would be very easy to say like, well, he's racist. He's a racist <laughs> slave owner. And clearly that's his motivation. I don't think anybody actually has said that. Um, I think that's the obvious one. And I think it's the one e- most easily avoided when you actually look at the film. But, um, but what I like is that there are there are no clear motivations, so it can be open to any to interpretation. You can uh-huh. say he feels a certain sense of betrayal. You could, uh, you know, and just and feels a constant inferiority. It's why he uh, is like constantly trying to assert his power. It's why he uses, uh, you know, words to like try to almost violate people, uh-huh. um, and why like. He's he's almost okay with the notion of man. I'm losing interest in what I have to say. <laughs> have you ever had that? Yes. It's, a, it's just where you lose interest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but no, it just yeah. I feel like I've said everything that I can say about Django and Chain last year. But I will say that like when Django shows up as seemingly an equal, uh-huh. and he's only ever seen it seen you know black people the other way. Right, right. And then he's forced for a number of reasons to treat him as an equal. And then he discovers this guy is using my willingness uh-huh. to treat him as an equal to exploit me. Like the, just the, just the sheer anger. He's just such an angry character. Just, it's always like right under the surface. Sometimes it comes out. Um, and it's, and that's where you get, that's where you get the kind of the DiCaprio intensity. Um, that he is constantly that the character and the actor are constantly pushing down. Uh, but again, like that's, that speaks to like a choice he's making as opposed to his motivation. And so I've always, I've always been fascinated by your 
theory about Calvin Candy because to my knowledge, nobody else has said it. That's not to discredit you. Okay. I think like there's I'm clearly a, the smartest person in the world when it comes to Django. When it comes to Django Unchained, <laughs> I think you might be the smartest person in the world. Well done, David. We can move on to the actual topic. I apologize. Uh, that, I, that was part of the topic, though, because uh, a thing. Well, let's go back. Let's, OK, well, we can use. Let's go I, back to I, American Hustle, actually. OK, and we can but go Django to Wolf of Wall of, Street, too, if you want, because they're both. OK, you know, Wolf of Wall Street might actually tie in better to American Hustle. They're both very long movies. Wolf yeah. of Wall Street is very long. Yeah. Uh, they're both movies that have a lot of improvisation, mm-hmm. uh, which can be a problem and can hurt a movie, in my opinion. Um, that's why I didn't like the 21 Jump Street movie that much as we talked about yeah. last week. Um, cause I felt like it didn't, it didn't care that it wasn't making sense, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, at times cause it cause the improvisation was the key. Uh, but in both, both Wolf of Wall Street and in American Hustle, or at least specifically with, uh, Bradley Cooper's character, despite the length of the movie, despite the messiness of the movie the intentional messiness of the movie Mm -hmm. and despite the fact that it took a long time to shoot and that movies are shot all out of order Mm -hmm. it's a consistent performance that changes that has a that has a a dynamism to it oh yeah uh and i i think that's something that i I almost feel naive like saying that like it's a big revelation but it's not something that i have thought about as much as i should uh you know how how important it is for an actor to keep everything in his head or her head, but mm-hmm. we're talking about Bradley Cooper here. Um, uh, and, and how difficult that must be, uh, and, and what sort of skill that takes. Well, and this is why I want to bring in Wolf of Wall Street, but we can, we can focus on Bradley Cooper as well. One of the things that a performance or all the performances can do in a film. And one of the reasons why I've been, why in the last couple of years, I've become fascinated by not merely the role that a character can play in the larger technical aspect of a film but also the role of a of an actor is that i would venture to say that wolf of wall street is a heightened film uh-huh. uh i would even say american hustle kind of is too and so if you have characters if you have actors giving realistic performances in, and then the editing around them is manic and crazy like you are going to feel like you are watching a bad uneven movie Mm -hmm. you need like the the actors whether we acknowledge it or not they are our entry point into a film characters are but then the actors and the performance the performances they're giving Mm -hmm. i think is one of the reasons why though i love the film and i don't view this as a flaw i could see people having a very hard time getting on board with the master because freddie quell is is our main character uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, and that's yeah. the performance that was given. And like, we're supposed to sympathize with this guy or he, he's our surrogate and we, and he is not like us. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a conscious choice by the actor to just constant. And we're just as a function, as a result, we're just always on edge. Always. Like you can do all the editing. You can, you can make all kinds of editing decisions. If the performance is calm and relaxed and kicked back, not that, the, not that it would necessarily fit that character, but there's a way to play him like that, um, then it's not going to work. And in the same way, while I, I agree with you, like Bradley Cooper, it's his growing insanity uh-huh. that is the, the chaotic core of American hustle. But also it feels like it's, 
it's completely of the movie. I'll, I'll compare another uh, performance uh, movie I don't think you didn't see yet, um, uh, but Tony Servillo, who stars in The Great Beauty, mm-hmm. uh, is also really compelling and really sort of large, larger than life character, like Bradley Cooper plays mm-hmm. in American Hustle, that are both in, like entirely inextricable from the tapestry of the film, right? But also feel like they exist outside the frame, not necessarily that they're relatable because Bradley Cooper's character is not relatable because he's completely insane Mm -hmm. and in a real life would have lost his job before the movie was half over probably. Um, But they feel so fully realized that Mm -hmm. you can just imagine them going on. You can imagine their life. Whereas, and I feel like it's almost sacrilegious at this point because we've canonized Christian Bale as one of our greatest actors. I don't like Christian Bale's performance that much in American Hustle because it, uh, and I'm sorry to always use Sean Penn as an example. That's your example. That's my example, yes. I feel like I can see him acting in that mm-hmm. movie. Um, and I feel like maybe, and this is all obviously just uh, me guessing, but maybe Christian Bale has bought into his own reputation a little bit uh, and is he's acting with a capital A. In I disagree completely. You do? Character's a con man. He's always acting. Always. You know what? That's funny. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because that's something I said to my fiance was that as much as I didn't love the movie, I feel like it being a con man type of movie, yeah. it might help me to see it again, knowing what I know. Mm-hmm. And maybe I'll see things that I don't. Cause there are, this is off topic. There are some choices that David Russell makes with his camera that are very odd yeah. in the moment. And I wonder if they make sense going back. Uh, did you, I forget. Did you see silver Linings playbook? I never did. I'd be fascinated to know what you think of it. Um, I want to see it more now because my other favorite performance in American Hustle is Jennifer Lawrence. Yeah. Um, and so I would love to see them together. Both of them are able to do something. You and I talked, uh, I can't remember, we didn't do an episode on this, but it came up. Um, uh, the idea of, uh, or I, I don't know, it, it, I guess it came up with the Golden Globe nominations that some people may be a little too strict in their idea of what comedy is. Mm-hmm. Um, Bradley Cooper and Jennifer, Lauren, Jennifer Lawrence are, in my opinion, the two funniest characters in that movie. Yeah. And yet they're completely believable and real and a part of the movie. And you understand that they're human and have emotions, but they just say like incredibly funny stuff. Oh, yeah. You know, Jennifer Lawrence, I don't want to ruin it. Just says, thank God for me. Uh, that's the, one of the funniest lines in the movie. Yeah. And says it and just, and it's just, there. there is something to be said about like an actor who finds who especially comedically you dramatically as well and we can maybe talk about the end of captain phillips where since we're talking about only movies this year apparently yeah um but like <laughs> yeah but, but yeah that is tough i was actually thinking about that like i need to think of some more examples but my head is i'm sitting in such a headspace of like recent movies yeah because i wanted to talk about actually while we're on the subject of recent movies i wanted to talk about amy simetz in um upstream color which, which i haven't, haven't seen yet seen yet but uh, you'll be seeing it soon right that's the plan that's the plan um that's a movie that is incredibly fragmented, um, although not as – its reputation is that it's more nebulous than it actually is. It's mm-hmm. actually a really straightforward story. Okay. It's just presented in a way that seems kind of fractured and fragmented, um, but it, it's pretty straightforward. But still, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff for her to do that seems in, in, unconnected and a lot of weird jumps in time. Mm-hmm. And yet, Amy Simons does a great job of keeping – her character's emotional arc going throughout the film. It's a fantastic performance. So that seems to, okay. Uh, sorry. I'll, I'll finish the point I was going to make earlier, which is there is something 
fascinating and so deeply satisfying when an actor finds exactly the right delivery to make the line the best it could ever be uh-huh. ever. Yeah. And her saying, thank God for me, the uh-huh. way she says it, it's like, uh-huh. that's, that's how you say that line. Yeah. <laughs> like no one, no one could ever say that line better. Yeah. And just, and it's brilliant, but okay. So, um, so I'll get I'll get back to what you were what you were saying in in one moment. But what I will say is that like in talking about Wolf of Wall Street, um, and American Hustle, but actually I think I'll talk more about American Hustle since that's what we're discussing. Um, you know, so much of that. I mean, there it's it's a, a character movie to a certain extent. Um, the story matters only to a point. Mm-hmm. The fact that we're not given a lot of details, not unlike Wolf of Wall Street, the fact that we're not given a lot of specific details should say that it's more a character story. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, each specific character informs how we should view the overall film. Each, each one has a, obviously a part to play, but in setting the tone for the film, Christian Bale is charming and false. Mm-hmm. Okay. But I know maybe that's the problem. I never find him that charming. Well, it's like that's the thing, and He's that's not, part of partially that's David Russell's fault and the costume designer's fault for steering into the skid on the costumes, which is something that I never got used to. It's and, like it's like the forty-eight frames per second thing in the Hobbit movie. Okay, I never got used to how ugly everyone's clothes looked, and wondering like this doesn't seem. I mean, if you go back to Argo, which takes place at roughly the same right. period, it made it seem realistic the way the characters were dressed. But that's one of the things that I like, and that's the thing I, I I'm. I don't want to talk too much about this because it's not talking about the the matter at hand, which is acting. But like, it's one of the things that I love about the film because when you when you see David or Russell's other films, like you know that he, you know, like Three Kings, a film that is very stylized, but mm-hmm. people aren't dressed in a crazy way or anything like that. Right. But in so in this, if people look like this, there's got to be a reason. It's not merely that they're dressed like the '70s; they're dressed like the essence of the '70s, uh-huh. and the performance. You know, and like, and his character from the star of David necklace (laughs) to the specific type of comb over to the glasses he has, to the way he walks, everything about him is the essence of Mm -hmm. this Jewish guy in the Mm seventies. Um, let's talk about going back to performance. Okay. And this is something else like non-acting movie. We should put a pin in and come back to, but performances were, uh, or pieces of performance that aren't about the talking. Cause there's like. We see him put together his comb over. Oh. And then shortly after, we see Bradley Cooper mess it up on purpose. That's actually a great moment where they're just yeah. standing there looking at each other and his hair's all messed up. Yeah. And David Russell lets it breathe. Yeah. It's a really great little moment with no words in it at all. It's, yeah. And and that's a function of like just purely visual storytelling, just like, and knowing when, like, how the movie started. The fact the movie starts <laughs> with the building of the comb over. <laughs> Like that, that speaks volumes about who this character is and what the movie you're going and the movie you're going to see. So, so we have falseness, we have sincerity in Jeremy Renner's character and he winds up being a he winds up being the stakes of the film so that we're invested. And so the more since, so that's why his performance is the most sincere and one could say the smallest. Because he needs to be the most recognizable person mm-hmm. as the most recogni- recognizable character as a person. 
someone we feel like we can get on board with so that the character so that uh you know the character who's a con man actually gets on board with him spoilers mm-hmm. um then you have the then you have story-wise the driving force the thing that starts everything and that is bradley cooper 100 mm-hmm. percent. and so he is playing yes a character but he's also playing a plot point or or a plot or, or just the driver of the plot he is a he is a human mechanism and that's and so like in a way i remember i remember one of the things uh that i remember uh uh ben kingsley saying about his performance in sexy beast is among other things that he's like a scud missile but also the idea that it's just a shark mm-hmm. constantly moving can't move can't move backwards mm-hmm. constantly moving forward and if you're in his way well that's unfortunate <laughs> um and that's how I felt about Bradley Cooper. He's just constantly yeah. moving forward and you yeah. cannot stop him. Yeah. And if you get in his way, <laughs> you're in trouble. And so yeah. in a, hilarious. They're both so. violent and hilarious. Yeah. And uh, so, so he makes things, he drives things forward and you realize like, oh, he's just going to drag everyone with him. But then on top of everything, cause you add all these things together and you actually get a pretty funny movie. Yeah, it is. A pretty then funny. you get, but you need, but you also get a, a bunch of characters who are mostly in control. They, they're able to manage things. Then you need, what you need is a wild card. And there you have Jennifer Lawrence mm-hmm. who has to give a realistically unhinged performance. Somebody who is not actually invested in what is happening and thus <laughs> can say whatever the hell she wants. <laughs> and so it's just, uh, so that, so, uh, American Hustle is a perfect example of like, Yes, the the actors are giving performances and they're trying to be true to their characters, but the characters themselves play a larger a larger role, not merely in the telling of the story, but also in the emotional and technical tone of the film. Yeah, I think I'm done with it. Sorry. Okay. Well, that gets me to this is uh, I want I want to talk about this, and I'm going to get this back to acting, but about directors mm-hmm. and about how uh, maybe something I have been guilty of in the past and thinking is thinking of directors in terms of there's your actors directors and there's your directors who are more technical or more style right conscience conscious and uh you know i mean if you you haven't seen august osage county that's clearly john wells is clearly in the former camp because it's not a very stylistically rich movie yeah it doesn't it, seem like it uh but then you look at her which i forget you I didn't not, see okay, I've seen, yeah. it's on your list um but you've seen other spike jones movies mm-hmm uh, as as much as they are about the production and the presentation and uh, you know uh, all these outlandish things, one thing that makes his movies work so well is how how intimate and personal and human each one of them is, and the great performances that he gets out of out yeah. of people these these incredibly heartbreaking performances that he that he gets out out of out of his actors. Uh, I don't know. This is just me like laying out what my biases have been in the past, I guess, mm-hmm. or like coming to terms with how I've been wrong about things. Um, well, and but that's, that's, oh, I want to okay. get to something else to get to an older movie, uh, older set of movies. Oh boy. Um, because here, uh, in a franchise where you're dealing with one character and multiple directors, I think one of the reasons I love the alien franchise so much is that as much as the movies vary in quality and style and presentation and everything, Ripley is Ripley in every movie. Yeah. Uh, really powerfully so. And I think that's a, a great testament to Sigourney Weaver's talents. And that's, and that's the thing is like for, for a number of years, uh, I, I was really insecure about being kind of a character and story guy when hosting a movie podcast. 
um, because character and story are, one could make the argument, inherently theatrical. What makes film film is editing and cinematography and the use of sound. Um, Like story is something you can find in novels and you can find in plays. Acting and dialogue, that's, you know, you can find that in plays. There's nothing – now, of course, there is also film acting, which is different. Uh, but it's still, it's tapping into the same thing. And so I remember thing like the stuff, I, uh, I remember having this weird type of shame in thinking the stuff I like about film is actually stuff I like about theater. Uh-huh. And thus, what right do I have to host a movie podcast? <laughs> okay. I know it's weird, but right. d- does that, especially when I'm hosting it with somebody who does tend to focus in on the, the things that are the, one could say the inherently filmic aspects of film. But that's why we're a great combo i guess so sure why not um but uh and i mean obviously chemistry but like yeah. uh it's will they won't they that's, <laughs> that's exactly what it is <laughs> so um will they kill each other or not that's the question that's what i thought you meant so um but as time has gone on i've i have come to embrace character as as i said earlier like a just one more like how would you put it like one more tool in the toolbox that a director has, you know? And so, uh, so you get, and what's more is movies that I, there are movies that I, for example, uh, I'll bring up, uh, the visitor. Okay. Which, which came out in 2008. It's, it's a Tom, Tom McCarthy, McCarthy film. I love Tom McCarthy. I, I really like the movies that he makes. Uh, that is not a, one could say that is not a technically dazzling film, nor is it trying to be. It wants to be a character study. And that, that focuses in on the acting and a specific type of acting. And I remember, and that was my favorite movie of that year. And I remember being kind of like, oh man, being almost ashamed of it (laughs) because, you know, I don't, what was 2000, like 2008. Do you remember what your favorite movie was that year? I want to say it ended up being Rachel getting married. Okay. All right. Well, there's an example too, like, uh, of a film that emphasizes actors and characters. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I used to feel like, well, those no one's going to talk about that movie because it's just about, you know, it's just actors and characters. It's just like, yeah, but that's what well, the it, filmmaker wants it to be. Uh, I don't know if it's a defense of Rachel getting married or just to, uh, it's about more than that. I mean, Rachel, Rachel getting married, uh, it's, uh, the way it unfolds is idiosyncratic and almost in t- at times, um, uh, pushing against the, the, the structure you're expecting because he'll often just stop a scene. Like you, you think like, okay, we should get to, in this scene, we'll get to this resolution and then move on to the next thing because that's how the, what the structure dictates. Right. And he'll just let scenes go on almost like in some cases, very exactly like, like Richard getting married is a musical. And mm. sometimes it is an actual musical. And it being performed. Sometimes it's a contest to see who can load a dishwasher faster, yeah. which is just as much, <laughs> presented as a musical number as the musical numbers are anyway that's off topic yeah no there's part of the reason that i love rachel getting married yeah so there's much. plenty of don't get me wrong there's plenty of uh technical choices by the director often the the choice to don't get me wrong okay i i, I don't want I'm, i want to make sure i don't say this the, right, the, the wrong way <laughs> um it appears as though he's not making a choice in certain scenes. Like he's not choosing to cut away, but of course that's just as much a choice choice as anything else. So, um, but yeah. And so what I've talked about primarily so far is just the role that a, a 
not merely a character, but a performance, what that can do to inform the film in general, but also how the audience should view the film. Um, but one thing you've, you mentioned it a couple of times and enough that it struck me. And so I wanted to come back to it. The thing that seems to fascinate you, and I apologize if this comes off as uh, insulting. Um, the thing that seems to fascinate you is the, uh, is the, I don't know what you'd call it, but like the ability of an actor to, as you said, keep things straight in his head at all times. I mean, Mm -hmm. films aside from beautiful mind and maybe a handful of other things, films are not shot in order. And when you have a character who, you know, if you're, if it's a supporting character, they're probably not changing and that provides a certain degree of freedom. Um, but if you're a lead, you're changing, there's an arc and you have to always know where that arc's going to be. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't mean to say that that's the only thing you find fascinating in, in acting, but, um, but it is, it's as I, I guess, I guess I'm trying to make a correlation between, um, the technical know-how that leads to great cinematography. Yeah. The technical slash intellectual slash artist artistic know-how, you know, um, it's not cause cinematography isn't just, uh, you know, um, the lenses and the exposure and the, and things like, things like that. It's knowing when to use those, at the right time for the story you're telling, you know? Um, and this often ends up being not just a cinematographer or the director, but uh, you know, a collaboration between them. But, you know, um, I can't think of an example, but you know, say you've presented a character, the entire movie, you've been looking at the right side of his face and then there's a time you're going to switch around and see the other side of his face. Mm -hmm. And there's a reason you're doing it then, uh, if you've done it right. I I can't think of an example, but that's just sort of, the idea that I'm talking about here. Um, and so uh, I guess that's just me trying to build a correlation between that sort of skill that I am and talent that I understand yeah. and acting, which is a little more, a little more difficult for me to wrap my, my brain around. So I'm just trying to relate it to tech, technical know-how. Yeah. And both, I mean, in both cases, it's a, it's a craft, but one seems more, and, and that, it's a craft that's, that is inspired by, wanting to create an emotion in the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, and as, and as intellectual as some movies can be, I think they start emo- from an emotional place. And so whether it be a certain type of cut or a certain type of camera movement at a, at a specific place, um, it can also be in a performance and the choice that an actor makes. Um, trying to, and that's the thing I'm trying to think of an example, like the, the one that I, the, of what you're talking about, the one that I came up with, I feel like doesn't count, which was uh, Orson Welles in Citizen Kane, because he's playing not only a character over the course of his whole life, but he's also the film itself is also disjointed and it's all over the place. Right. But first off, he's playing him from the memory of different people. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Yeah. And so. So that's the thing. So like, but I feel like it doesn't count because a he co-wrote and directed. (laughs) <laughs> so he's keeping that in mind too. Okay. And also he does have the makeup to help him. Like I'm in this makeup. This is what I look like. So this is where I am in my performance. This is where the, the character is. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Orson Welles is cheating or <laughs> it's not a good performance or anything like that. But I'm trying to think of something like, you know, like a Bradley Cooper who just has to progressively lose his mind 
right. in a way that is funny and entertaining and, and, and all and, of that. And completely organic seeming. Yeah. Even though it's the way we're talking about it makes it seem as inorganic as possible. Yeah. It has to it has to read as organic, and that's really really impressive. Um You know, I remember back in school I was making a film and I was editing it and I made and I made a cut that was perfect in its invisibility. Uh-huh. Not not that it was a cut like like oh I I didn't even notice like now that that looks like a like one shot but it was actually two. Not that kind of invisible. I literally mean there's a part where a guy lifts his arm as he's saying something but I want to see the other guy's reaction to the thing he's saying. And so I got it and the lifting of the arm was uh-huh. one fluid motion from one shot to the next. And the nature of it is that you're not even supposed to know it. It's not, it's not jarring. Mm-hmm. It is yeah. the essence of what an edit, of what an edit should be yeah. or can be. Yeah. And so, but I was so proud of it, even though no, the, the nature of it is that nobody notices, you know? <laughs> so you want to tell everybody. Yeah. Hey guys, <laughs> did you notice that anything there? No, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, uh, and I feel like that's what certain performances, like when you realize how much work goes into it. And I am somebody who, who thinks that like much as I make fun of Sean Penn for trying to convince us through his performance that he's working really hard. Uh-huh. It is hard to do. And it's something not everybody can do. Um, it's, it's why it is what separates stage acting from film acting stage acting. The minute the play starts, you've got it. You know where you're starting, right. where you're ending and you're done. Yeah. Whereas this, it's different every every day, and it's up to you to and with of course with the director uh, helping, but it's up to you to know where you are mentally in that moment. Um, another thing that I think is a bit different from film acting because of close ups is the way that uh, uh, the one that leaves to mind because we're sticking with all these recent movies is Kate Blanchett in Blue Jasmine. Mm-hmm. But the way that a character can use her uh, or an actress can use her face or actor can use your face um to let you know that what's going on inside her mind is not doesn't necessarily match what she's actually saying yeah uh that's um again this is making me feel like i'm saying a a lot of really obvious stuff Mm -hmm. but i'm thinking about it more deeply than i maybe ever have before and that's kind of part of why i want to do this episode Mm -hmm. but you know what i'm talking about oh yeah absolutely uh and that's that gets me to uh uh, we haven't done a lot of talking about performances I don't think are good, but this will kill a bunch of birds with one stone. This will kill the wordless. Uh, we can get to, to the wordless thing. We can get to the non-acting, non-actors versus actors thing and get to this. As much as I like All is Lost, okay. I liked it a lot, I don't think that Robert Redford has a whole lot to do with why I liked it. I think okay. the casting is right. If you know what I mean, but okay, yeah. I feel like J.C. Shandor could have cast a non-actor with a working knowledge of sailboats and told the same story with the same general level of effectiveness. Hmm. Uh, I don't know. You haven't seen it. It's on your. We'll keep talking about these movies that are on your list of things to see. Yeah, um, but you know, you're not the first one to say such a thing. Uh, uh-huh. Josh Long, who reviewed the film. Uh, took the screening i he did sorry i gave him the screening that i was scheduled for but i but i but i was sick so unfortunately because i got sick i you know i'm unable to talk about it with you now but uh but josh who writes for us scott who writes for us none of the neither of them and then a handful of other people say like yes performance is good but really like 
what is there? Like, that's the thing. When it's a wordless performance and it's really just a character doing things, and I'm saying, speaking as somebody who didn't see the film, so I don't know, but like a character who's merely doing things and it's all about survival and there's not a lot of dialogue, the actor has to imbue the character with something. Mm -hmm. And based on what I've heard about the film, it maybe maybe this is the problem of the director is that that there are no he's so busy all the time making but sure he doesn't die. There's even like things about that we are able to there's subtle things in the movie. Um this isn't really a spoiler. There's one point he pulls out because he's lost the use of his of his electronic navigation. Yeah. He pulls out a, a box he has on celestial navigation, mm-hmm. uh, which is by the way the name of a West Wing episode. Um but he pulls out a box that clearly is a gift. This is the first time, like he's opened it when he got it, but this is the first time he's actually using it. Yeah. And so you, because you see that it's a gift, you get to think about like, oh, who is he? Wherever he is stranded in the Indian Ocean right now, where and who is someone waiting for him? Yeah. Uh, does he have kids? Is this a wife? Um, but everything we're thinking about that, we're told by the prop, not by his right. reaction to it. And that's what I, that's what I'm talking about. And I mean, I guess there's something to be said that he's not like, like, you know, uh, mugging or, you know, like like wiping tears or whatever. Like he's just doing what needs to be done. Um, So it's not a bad performance. Yeah. It's just not, it doesn't rise above the level of uh, a a tool in the filmmaker's uh, kit, I guess. Yeah. And it's, and. Okay, just to keep going with my – this is fun. You know, we uh-huh. so seldom talk about exclusively new movies. Um, Tom Hanks and – I think Cap- if we do it this time of year, we probably end up doing probably, it. Probably, <laughs> yes. Okay. Tom Hanks and Captain Phillips. Uh-huh. Um, when you think about it, there's not much of an arc to that character. He is – admittedly, he's got a lot to work with because the character doesn't stop talking. Mm-hmm. He needs to keep other people talking, which is the uh-huh. idea. And when he's not talking, he has the he's just watching things around him and is reflecting on his situation. So he has more opportunities, I think, than it than it sounds like Robert Redford has to convey things to the audience. But yeah. when you think about it, it's the same type of performance. It's the same the the character's uh, goals are the same, which is just get out of this alive. Certainly, after a certain point, it's get out of this alive. Uh-huh. And so – and for the first – you know, up until a certain point, like it, the character – there's the potential in the character to just sort of be there and we and it feels like we're watching a reenactment and that's it. But Tom Hanks, who admittedly plays a good everyman, but also just, just somehow just invests weight – in everything. Now, he does have a good script helping him out. But it's one of those things you you mentioned you talked about um Kate Blanchett and that like what she's saying is not necessarily what she's thinking uh-huh. and we need to know that. And she does it in ways that I don't even I can't even identify. Um yeah. and in this you have a character who's always thinking on like three levels and he's saying something and that's the thing. He has to say something uh to his captors that will manipulate them and we need to see that that's what he's doing but it can't be so obvious that they see it 
Because then if it's really obvious and the, and the other characters aren't seeing it, then we just are like, what are they, a bunch of idiots? Do they not realize what he's doing? You right, know what I mean? Right, like yeah, yeah, yeah. there are so many layers and he managed to navigate every single one. And without that t- – and uh, Barka, Barkhad Abdi or something? Yeah, I, I, so. I, I don't know if that's how you say it. But uh, as the chief uh, captor, he um, – I'm sorry. What? I started laughing because uh, it's unfortunate. Uh, early on when the movie came out, uh, a number of people, including uh, myself and my friends, just refer to that character as I'm the captain now uh, <laughs> because we didn't know his name immediately. Okay. And I can't call it to mine now. And so but then I just called him the captor. So right. I imagined him saying I'm the captor now. Right. That's dumb. I apologize. Okay. Moving on. But like, and he ha- and he has a role to play because his character, honestly, makes a lot of, for lack of a better term, dumb moves. He needs to see. He needs to make dumb moves without us ever thinking he's dumb. He needs to seem in over his head without us ever thinking he's weak. Mm-hmm. You know. So you have these two characters and these two performances, and if if neither of those work. Or if one works and the other doesn't, the film doesn't work. It doesn't matter. I mean, Paul Greengrass is a master of like suspenseful editing and utilizing cinematography to put us as on edge as possible. But if we feel like Captain Phillips is way smarter than right, his right. captors or the, the cap or, or well, the, the captors aren't buying what he's saying, like the movie doesn't work to get into analysis of the film uh, itself as opposed to just the acting. The reason it works is not because Tom Hanks or Captain Phillips is smarter, but because he's had years more training. Right. It goes back to something I was talking about with the difference between actors, directors, and technical directors and how they're not necessarily different. Mm. Um, Paul Greengrass is both an actor's director and a political director. Yes. Because Captain Phillips, I think, is very much a movie about the changing slash disappearing middle class and how that has made things a little more cutthroat, a little more lean, um, and a little less comfortable for people in the middle class and, and Captain Phillips represents someone who came up in a way where things, there was more um, room for advancement, more time for you to learn and to advance. Mm-hmm. And um, in a very little, literal way in this, in the fact that he's a pirate, I'm the captain now is yeah. uh, more of a, he's, he's got a, he's, it's a sink or swim type of uh, mentality, which is how it can often feel in the American workplace today. In the middle and class. he's, and he's super young, yeah. you know? And so, but, and that's, and that's the other thing is on top of, on top of, uh, creating characters that we care about and do not condemn and believe and helping to convey the tone of the film. They also have the job, and this is for actors in general. They also have the job of help helping to convey the theme of the film without over conveying, because that is definitely a theme that I got, but, uh-huh. and this, this is maybe more of a function, more a function of the writing than the acting, except they pull it off. Well, is one of the themes is like it, Th- this circumstance, which is worldwide, is very unfortunate. But does that justify a person's actions? Yeah, that, you yeah, know, and that would be almost getting into spoilers. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't, I don't want to talk too much. And we, but they handle that. Yeah, you're right. But they handle that too. Yeah. Uh, in a moment of extreme okay. of extreme tension, and they they don't necessarily cut through it, but they get to the heart of it mm-hmm. without ever looking at the camera and saying, "What do you think, audience?" Let me ask you this. Okay. This will get into the non-actor thing, actually, okay. a little bit. 
Um, and I don't know if this is condescending on my part or, or, or what, but I often wonder about, like, people who have very small roles in films, or even relatively small roles. Um, how much are they expected to know what their appearance in the film means to the rest of the film? And doesn't that make them seem more like Alfred Hitchcock would call them cattle? You're just yeah. saying, you know, I, think there's, there, I remember thinking, uh, and I won't go into any details about what's going on, but there's a shot in The Great Beauty where uh, a camera is sort of moving through, is it a church or a convent or something? And you see a nun cross in front of the camera and stop and make, because the, the camera is supposed to represent the point of view of a, of a child. And so the, the, um, the nun like sort of makes a face at the camera and then keeps moving. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering like, does the actress who plays that nun, did she just show up and they said, walk here, make a face and then keep walking. Uh, or it, 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 is it, should an actor or actress who has any role know what role that is know what the importance is because i guess it makes me feel sorry for actors sometimes when they're just directed to do something and they don't know why they're doing it or what that represents well to reference uh last week's episode as i did before um you know i always felt kind of bad for gabriel byrne that he went through that whole movie Uh delivering a performance in which he was Kaiser Soze. Uh-huh. And then he wasn't. And, that's, and part of me is just like, well, now, because the director wanted something to be right for the audience, yeah. has actually wound up screwing over the character. But at the same time, from a screenwriting standpoint, it's also a story being told by somebody who wants to throw yeah. off. And so it's right for the movie. And so yeah. that's, maybe that's maybe this is we're finally an hour and 37 minutes in getting into the heart of why I have maybe shown less respect for actors because they are always at the whim of the director. Um, uh, you know, I mean, if you buy into the auteur theory, which I largely do, almost everyone is mm-hmm. at the whim of the director. But really, that's the main thing directors are there to do is to direct the actors. That's the tr- historically, traditionally, going going yeah. back to the beginning of, 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 of studio films, that's the role that the director played. And so that it feels like that that could be seen as putting the actor at a lower on a lower rung than other participants than other collaborators or filmmakers mm-hmm. because they uh they, they <laughs> the implication is that they need so much help yeah do you know what i mean uh yeah and but that's the th- but that is the reason they need so much help is not necessarily a function of the actor it's because the character is so vital whether people think it is or not, like as we've discussed already, like the characters, they are the face of the film, no matter though you and I are, uh, you know, movie fans and we recognize there's a lot going on that we're not seeing that we are seeing, Mm -hmm. but we're not aware that we're seeing. And we're certainly not seeing Roger Deakins or something like that, or, you know, skip leave C say, or whatever, however you say his last name that who does all, I think all the Coen brothers sound right. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, we're not seeing these people on screen. We're seeing their work, but not them. And so we need something to latch on to. And, and because we're people, the first thing we're going to latch on to is other people. And that's the actors. And so, 
it is vital. And so the, and if you don't get it right, then the movie's not necessarily going to work. So that's why the director has to work with them and more. You say work with, I think maybe that's the better way to think of it is to think of the director and the actors as collaborators, as opposed oh, to the director, the way Hitchcock thought of it. The director is the one who corrals the actors. And that's, that's, yeah. that's essentially what he is on record as having, yeah. having thought. And that's the thing is like, I would say if you were to watch his movies, they bear that out. With some exceptions. With a couple of exceptions. Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart, yeah. Um, um, and, but Anthony, and Anthony Perkins. Uh, but like, uh, maybe you're saying they called to mind a very recent uh, or somewhat recent um, interview in Entertainment Weekly in uh, promoting the film Last Vegas. No. It was an interview with, who is it, Morgan Freeman, Kevin Klein, Robert De Niro, uh, and the he, other one? Hang on. Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas. Yes, uh, I, think I, I think I read this, and I think it made me want to punch a wall. Oh, okay. Well, what they, what they were at one point complaining about bad directors they've worked with. Yeah. And Kevin Klein said that he once had a director say to him, here's what I think the character is thinking. And the other actors in the round table were like, oh, that's awful. And my first reaction was like, what the fuck's wrong with that? The director's in charge. Exactly. <laughs> okay, well, so I'm glad you agree with me. No, it's in the end, it's the director's choice. But at the same time, what's the harm in just saying, here's what I think? What do you think? Right. And, and and admittedly, maybe he did, and maybe the director didn't say that, but at the same time, like, and and if they're talking about just bad directors, and the director just goes up to Kevin Klein of all people and says, uh, "Just do what I say," Kevin Klein's like, mm, "I'm sorry, you don't know who Kevin Klein is." If that's how you're approaching him, yeah. Um, but yeah, and I, that's the thing. It's I like that's saw, where you get the. I'm not gonna name names, but in a movie that I, back when I used to do PA work, a movie I worked on, I once saw a director's literally do a line reading for an actor an actor that you've heard of and you know is, what here's the thing that 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 upset me a little bit a line reading is is something that i think a director should always avoid sometimes you have a very clear especially if you if especially if the director wrote it you have a okay. very clear idea in your head like this was meant to be read a very specific way it's shitty you don't like doing it like I say this as though I'm some kind of professional. I'm not, but I directed some stuff in in college, and most of the time, it's just like, oh, just let the actor do what, n- let them do what they want, and then shape it where you can. But then there was one line like, "It needs to be this." I'm going to read it for you. I'm sorry. I wish I didn't have to do this. I see. Okay. You know, it's it's an unfortunate. It's something that occasionally has to happen, and it's usually when it's only one line. If it's every line, then I think you've got an over. You have an impressive director at that point. Okay, but um. But yeah, and so uh, that and that's the thing is like, we'll we'll go back to Wolf of Wall Street. Okay, and then we should wrap up. Okay, we'll go back to Wolf of Wall Street. Bring it a full circle. We talked about DiCaprio. Mm-hmm. Did not talk much about Jonah Hill. How much do you think Jonah Hill brought to that part? Um, how much do I think he brought to the part? Uh, yeah. I would say a huge amount of it. Yeah, I'd say the vast majority of it. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's a lot of good. He's got a lot of good lines to say on the on the page and stuff and there's a lot to that character that you can play but like that character is successful because of jonah hill the actor right and 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 as as much as jordan belfort is the titular wolf of wall street uh what's his name donnie azoff Azoff, is as necessary to the movie i would say as jordan belfort is yeah very much so like he it's it's it, it bothers me, by the way, like I've been because of my fantasy Oscar thing, which, by the way, I'm coming up last. Um, <laughs> I still have made way more. I've gotten way more points than I did last year, but I'm still last by, I think, two points. But, hey, 
there's still a lot of, of awards left. I'm not going to win, but I may not come in dead last. Um, cause it all comes down to wins. Uh-huh. And when you've got Kate Blanchett, you're going to be okay. <laughs> Moving on. Um, this is about Jonah Hill. It is. Can I tell you? He's getting I, almost no Oscar, uh, no awards buzz at all. That's too bad. It's really too bad. Yeah. And maybe it's because uh, people don't respect comedy and what he's doing is a very much a comedic role. Um, but it reminds me of one of my, I, I mentioned to you before we started recording, I finally saw This is the End just mm-hmm. yesterday. And one of the biggest laughs in the movie is when Jonah Hill prays to God and he oh, says, yeah. dear God is Jonah Hill from Moneyball. Oh, I love it. Isn't it the best? And just, and he gets like, he does this little like head thing when he says yeah. it, like from Moneyball. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's the best. And that's the thing. And there's a, there's a line. Uh, I don't, I, I feel like I shouldn't spoil it. It's one of my, it's, okay. it is to me one of the biggest laughs. It has All to do right. with Benihana. Oh, and in, so, in Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Wolf of Wall Street. But there's so also, there's a line in that same scene that this won't be as much as a spoiler where he says to Jordan Belfort, um, uh, I don't think I'll ever not love getting fucked up. It's something like that. Yeah. And it's both, it's a funny line, but it's like, it's so heartbreaking yeah. and true to that character. Yeah. It's an amazing moment. And yeah, and it goes it's back true to what we're talking character. about like Bradley Cooper, that you can be outrageously funny in a movie and still be very real. Yeah. And what's, and of course everything about that character from the way he looks <laughs> to the way he acts is just ridiculous and heightened. But in that moment, it is astounding. He plays that part. He plays that line mm-hmm. with a certain degree of sadness, mm-hmm. humor, and the only word I can think of, empowerment. Uh-huh. <laughs> as though like, hey, you know, that's right. as if say that's who I am. And uh-huh. when you think about it, that's who these char- like that's how these characters think. It's like that's who I am. Take me or leave me. You know, and mm-hmm. if you don't take me, someone else will because I got a lot of money. Um, and it's just and that's the thing, like when it comes right down to it. One of the like this this started with American Hustle and, and it moved into Wolf of Wall Street and I think that's appropriate because Wolf of Wall Street, you know, it, it's three hours and doesn't necessarily feel it. Every once in a while, I started to feel it felt a little bit long, but I think that might have just been because there's so much excess. Then I'm like, I need a nap. <laughs> but but it is I get what you're saying. You're getting it's a towering technical achievement. Yeah, right? and that's the thing. Like, you you cannot speak enough about how brilliant the editing is that in a three-hour film you don't you really don't feel it yeah and uh and you're enjoying it by i want to say rodrigo prieto shot that i do not recall okay i i know i always know the editor for scorsese it's thelma shoemaker is that how you say yeah but Um, rodrigo prieto like made his name shooting things like uh amores peros and eight mile and 21 grams and these sort of like Hmm. gritty like sort of this washed out look which is so not how wolf of all not at all yes and it's it's just and so that's the thing so the reason the yes you can you can argue like you can say that it is a technical achievement above all but and so in the same way that if you had those actors giving those performances but you had a different editor a different dp the film might not have worked and it certainly would have felt it's three hours but you can also say like if you like, you can have the all the editing choices be the same. You can have the same DP. You don't have DiCaprio in there. You don't have Matthew McConaughey. You don't have Jonah Hill. You don't have a movie. Mm-hmm. And it's not merely and it and it's not Martin Scorsese saying like micromanaging and saying do this, do this. Mm-hmm. Because I guarantee you, in the brilliant scene of physical comedy by Leonardo DiCaprio, I'd, I would venture to say some of those were uh, decided on the spot. Yeah. 
you know. Which I remember, like, I, people have compared it to Jerry Lewis. Um, the first thing that I thought of was Jim Carrey and Me, Myself, and Irene. Oh, I love it. Yeah, which is a movie I don't really like that much, but I know but the scene a, you're talking about. There's a part about. where he's both his personalities at once, and he's one of them is dragging the other one into the car. It's amazing. Yeah, I don't know how he did it. I don't, yeah. like, it seems like... <laughs> they removed some wires uh, in post or something like that. And so, and that, I guess that's, that's one of the things that I, especially from, I know this is your topic, so I apologize that I'm giving myself the last word. You're welcome to to chime in. Um, That's the thing is to anybody who would, who would maybe like certainly say that actors are cattle, but also um, might think that editing takes that uh, acting takes a back seat to you know editing or, or anything like that as far as how a movie works like i would ask like the, like your your favorite movies 2001 not a, you know accepted mm-hmm. uh although i don't remember the name of the actor but the guy who does the voice of hal pretty good performance there but anyway moving yeah, on but like Think of your favorite movies, even movies with non-actors like Bicycle Thieves or something like that. Yeah. I'm you know? thinking we should like at some point later do an entire episode about non-actors. That sounds good to me. Sometimes it works well, Bicycle Thieves. Sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. Gran Torino. But, um, <laughs> right. but like ask what yourself. What about uh, Bernie? That's a good one. That Oh, that's wonderful. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but like just at, ask yourself if this actor, if this movie didn't have this performance, would it be as good? You know, I right. mean, uh, people talk about Wolf of Wall Street in context of Goodfellas. Can you imagine somebody aside for like, imagine if Joe Pesci's character wasn't played like that. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Then we'll put a pin for another day in non-actors and we'll talk about bicycle thieves and Oh, Hassard Balthazar. Uh, okay. And, uh, all those things. Uh, and, uh, faces in which, uh, uh, John Cassavetti's secretary got an Oscar nomination. Huh. I've somewhat recently watched uh, Shadows for the first time. Mm-hmm. That is mind blowing. How it's mind blowing to me how good that movie is. I think I like it more than I like Faces. I think it might actually be my new favorite John Cassavetti's film. And, Have you seen Woman Under the Influence? Uh, no, that's up on that's on oh, the list. Oh boy! But um, uh, I mean, I would say Shadows up there with Two Lane Blacktop is maybe maybe most like most important independent american films i can think of well yeah absolutely most important yeah. uh, certainly all right uh douglas rain was the voice of hell okay all right um you can find us at battleshippretension.com that's where you can find this podcast all the other podcasts in the fleet and all our movie reviews including many movie reviews by tyler and i and our other writers of the recent movies we talked about today uh, let's see i reviewed wolf of wall street mm-hmm. <laughs> um i reviewed her yeah i don't think we have an american hustle do we uh no i don't think we do Huh. Uh, Scott reviewed Inside Lewin Davis, yeah. which we didn't talk about at all today. Right. Did we have a Blue Jasmine review? We don't. That's too bad. Um, Josh reviewed All is Lost, as yeah. mentioned. Uh, what else did we talk about today in terms of recent movies? Upstream Color, Matt Warren reviewed that a million years ago. Yeah. Um, Maybe we do have a Blue Jasmine, and I just don't know. I don't think we do. Okay. Sorry, go on. Um, I can't think of any more off the top of my head, but uh, that's a good spectrum of our uh, writers um, represented there. So uh, that's a Damn, battleship. How did I get through this whole episode without bringing up the work of Alexander Payne? Uh, Son of a bitch. I don't know. Okay. I almost tried to, when you said acting was your forte, I tried to make a Will Forte joke <laughs> and I couldn't think of one. And now I'm doing that lazy thing of like, you know, insert your own joke here, which is yeah. my least favorite thing in the world yeah. ever. Is. Sometimes it works though. I don't know. 
I don't know. It's worse than a. It's worse than an ingrown toenail, as far as I'm concerned. The, which are the worst? <laughs> oh, and I've yeah, that I have experience. Keep that in mind. I don't know why. Uh, you can that's that's a battleshipretention.com. You can follow. You can email me David at battleshipretention.com or email Tyler Tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at The Pretension. You can follow Tyler at More Lessons. That's the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which you can find at morethanonelesson.com. My other podcast is a weekly TV show with King of TV, King of TV Paul Goebel called Hey, Watch This with Paul and David. This week, we're doing something fun in that we're taking the week off. But what we're doing back uh, before the new premiere started, Paul and I took a look based on advertising we've seen based on casting based on premise based on creators and made sort of predictions of Mm -hmm. which ones we thought were going to be good and which weren't oh that's fun so paul's going to just re-air that episode (laughs) so we'll see um how it how how our predictions stack up against what the shows really are i think one of the one that paul brought up to me that we both took a whiff on is we were both excited about the Michael J. Fox show, which I think went downhill pretty quickly. No, did it really? Okay. Uh, yeah. Cause I, Cause I, I listened to your episode and, yeah, and you both thought was it was okay. Bad. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so that's it. Uh, that's Hey, watch this. You can, uh, you can find that on battleship or in iTunes and, uh, that's it. Thank you for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.